Dave Kendall with you for another excruciatingly exciting episode of 120 Minutes on MTV. And what a show we have in store for you. The top 10 alternative records of 1990, my humble but correct opinion on unsigned band to watch for in 91, and a look back on Depeche Mode's biggest year yet. This is Cop, yeah, yeah, this is Cop. Hi, this is Matt Pinfield on 120 Minutes. No, no, that's not true at all. <laughs> Welcome to This Is Comp, the rumpus room of Discord and Rhyme, where we go through various artist compilations and box sets, artist by artist, song by song. Roll call. Mike DeFabio. Rich Bunnell. And Phil Maddox. The, the 120 Minutes VJ that I remember is Dave Kendall, who insulted they might be giants. He called them sellouts, so I hate him. <laughs> yeah, those sellouts and they might be giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a quick Apollo promo. 18, such a sellout record. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was because of Birdhouse in Your Soul. But anyway. Oh. Quick reminder, you can get access to these episodes six weeks early by signing up for a monthly pledge at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash discordpod. And thanks to everyone who already has. Yeah, thanks. We are still on Nevermind the Mainstream, the best of MTV's 120 Minutes, Volume 2, and this episode covers tracks 7 through 11. It's both a surprisingly gloomy set of songs, and it has some really heavy hitters. Yeah. So we're going to start this episode off with a song you can apply directly to your forehead. This is the Jesus and Mary chain with Head On. All right. <laughs> Head On is taken from the Jesus and Mary Chain's third LP, 1989's Automatic. It was released as a single in 1989 and managed to climb all the way to number two on the U.S. Alternative Songs chart, though it managed to miss the Hot 100 entirely. It hit number 57 in the U.K. and number 102 in Australia, so had some success. The Jesus and Mary Chain were formed in 1983 in East Kilbride, Scotland, by brothers Jim and William Reed. These days, they're most well-known for their 1985 LP, Psycho Candy, which is one of those albums that I always see referred to as a classic and always see it show up on lists of great albums, etc., etc., but I'd never actually listened to it until I was preparing for this episode outside of the song Just Like Honey, which has shown up on a few compilations. So their earliest work was characterized by lots of abrasive noise and antagonistic live shows. By the time this album came out in 1989, though, that had settled down quite a bit. And to my ears, this sounds like pretty standard late 80s alternative rock slash post-punk. I gave a listen to Psycho Candy before we recorded this just so I'd have something to compare this to, and this is pretty comparatively tame. It's a solid pop song, but it's worlds away from their earlier work. Didn't Jesus and Mary Chain fans hate this one when it came out, like this whole album? Yeah, they really hated this whole <laughs> album because 
basically, it was just the two brothers and a drum machine, and all the noise and such was just completely smoothed away. Yeah, I never really got into the Jesus and Mary chain because literally every time they came up in our little group of websites, it was just someone making fun of them. So I was just <laughs> kind, of, kind of driven away from them. This was going to come up inevitably, but I have to say that I like the Pixies version of this song a lot more from their Trump Lamond album. Yeah. Yes, it's a much better version. It chops the length of the song in about half. Yeah, it's definitely, it has a more interesting arrangement too with that cool down part. And just uh, Black Francis just sounds more interested in singing the song. Oh yeah. The yeah. Jesus and Mary Chain always sounds so bored. Yeah, yeah. And on that, like on that note, uh, well, so I actually watched all the music videos for this set because uh, by the nature of this compilation, all of these songs had music videos. And uh, it's funny how like how literally the singer embodies the term shoegazer because he spends the <laughs> entire video just vacantly staring at the ground. This song, I think it really may just be the dictionary definition of generic post-punk song. Yeah, which is not bad. That It's a good song. But it's got exactly what you would expect in a song of this genre, and nothing else, and nothing more. Yeah. Y you can add me to the list of people who prefer the Pixies version. It, they play it actually like it's a rock song. They're having fun playing. Jesus and Mary Chain, uh, they never sound interested at all. And, you know, with their, their earlier stuff like Psycho Candy, I, I could never get into that album because it's just... You know, there's a lot of guitar noise and feedback, but it's just sitting there. The songs do absolutely nothing. It's just one, two, three, four. <laughs> mumble, 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 mumble. That sounds like something that you would like. Right, but uh, it just doesn't grab me at all. It's just, I, you need to sound like you care about the guitar noise you're making, I guess. Mm -hmm. it's, it sounds like, it sounds like the, what the Velvet Underground must sound like to people who hate them. Yeah, it was very clear listening to Psycho Candy that they worshipped the Velvet Underground. Yeah. Here, they're just kind of, much like many bands from the time, they're slowly beginning their transition into new order. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you did in the 80s. You, you transitioned into new order. <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yes. Literally or figuratively, everybody <laughs> transformed into new order. I also want to mention, just when, whenever I first saw the name The Jesus and Mary Chain just mentioned, I always thought that those were the names of the people in the band, The Jesus and Mary Chain. The Peter, Paul, and Mary Chain. <laughs> and that was before The Big Lebowski came out, so I don't know where I got that idea. I, I always got them confused with David Yao's The Jesus Lizard. Oh, yes. A much better band. Yeah, so this is kind of the opening act for a set of very big songs that are coming up. Yes. So, uh... Yeah, if we don't have anything else to say about uh, Mary Chain and the Jesus, let's let's move on to some of those bigger songs, like a song that asks the musical question, "Why are you wearing that stupid man suit?" <laughs> this is Echo and the Bunny Man with the Killing Moon. Where's Donnie? <laughs> Under blue moon I saw you So soon you'll 
biggest hit and signature song by Echo and the Bunnymen, reaching number nine in the UK. So the Bunnymen evolved from late 70s Liverpool trio, The Crucial Three, with vocalist Ian McCulloch, as well as Pete Wiley and Julian Cope, who we heard from a few episodes ago on World Shut Your Mouth. After Wiley and Cope left to form The Teardrop Explodes, McCulloch began recording demos with guitarist Will Sargent and a drum machine. It's fan legend that this drum machine was named Echo, giving the band its name, but Sargent says that they had a pal who would just suggest silly band names like The Dazmen, Glycerol, and The Fan Extractors, and Echo and the Bunnymen just comes from this crop. So it's kind of a toad the wet sprocket sort of situation, they just picked an intentionally ridiculous name they heard. After rounding out the band with bassist Les Pattinson and drummer Pete DeFreitas, the band released its debut Crocodiles in 1980, kicking off a series of albums that are very well regarded by people who really like this kind of music. So The Killing Moon comes from their 1984 album Ocean Rain, which is the only Bunnymen album I've personally ever really been able to get into. And I played the album basically on repeat during a really long, boring summer bench warming the editor's desk at my college newspaper. <laughs> so... The song is generally considered their crowning achievement, and for us millennials, it's very closely tied to the movie Donnie Darko, where it plays over the opening montage. And apparently in the director's cut, it's replaced by Never Tear Us Apart by NXS, which, dis. Yeah, in, in the director's cut, it shows up later. Uh, oh, okay. The, it's still in, there. Yeah, it replaces uh, Under the Milky Way in a later scene. I have to I have to admit I never really wanted to know more about Donnie Darko so the, I never the, sought out the director's cut. The director's cut isn't great. Uh, I I thought that was the disc cuz I thought or I still think uh Under the Milky Way is a better song than The Killing Moon. Oh. Mhm. Yeah, this is the second of 3 Donnie Darko soundtrack songs in the Nevermind the Mainstream compilation <laughs> and the and the third one is the next song. <laughs> So Ian McCulloch offers the following very, very humble summary of The Killing Moon. <laughs> Quote, I've always said that The Killing Moon is the greatest song ever written. <laughs> awesome. I'm sure Paul Simon would be entitled to say the same about Bridge Over Troubled Water. But for me, The Killing Moon is more than just a song. It's a psalm, almost hymnal. It's about everything from birth to death to eternity and God, whatever that is, and the eternal battle between fate and the human will. It contains the answer to the meaning of life. It's my to be or not to be. End quote. Wow. I mean, I, mean, I like it. It's good. <laughs> Ian it's... McCulloch has a very high opinion of himself. It's not even my favorite Echo and the Bunny Men song, which would be- What is your favorite? The Cutter. Oh, yeah, that is a good That's one. a good one. Yeah, my favorite mm -hmm. might be Do It Clean, but this one's up there. Oh, yeah, this is a good song. Echo and the Bunny Men are one of those bands. I have their box set and a few of their albums- and I always feel like I should like them more than I do. I love The Cutter. The Cutter is an all-time great song. But most of their songs, I listen to them and think, this is good, but I never really connect too emotionally to any of it. That's hmm. kind of how I feel about The Killing yeah. Moon. It's a good song. It's well-constructed. It's catchy. 
It's got some nice vocal changes in it, but I don't know. For some reason, it never really clicks with me as a song that makes me go, oh man, I've got to hear The Killing Moon right now. I never, you know, pull this out because I have to hear The Killing Moon right now. Yeah. I like it as kind of the centerpiece to Ocean Rain, which is a good album. Yeah. I have to reiterate. Yeah, it's a good album. I think it's probably their best. If you like The Killing Moon, you, you need to hear Ocean Rain because it's full of, of songs like this. Uh, this this general sound. I agree. I, I never, like, intentionally want to listen to this song specifically at a, like, right now. But uh, I when it does come on, I'm like, oh, yeah, The Killing Moon. This is a great song. It's... It's uh, a Tony Darko is on. <laughs> yeah, it's a song I would describe as gorgeously spooky. It's uh, it's catchy and creepy in equal measure. It sounds like I, I get the the picture in my mind of like a cornfield at night when it comes on, and those uh, those chords during the verse uh, are actually they're taken from uh, the beginning of David Bowie's Space Odyssey, just played backwards, and. Uh, Ian McCulloch's uh, lead vocal, he can be a little overbearing sometimes. Like, he he sounds like, he sings like somebody who has a lot of faith in himself. But uh, here he he just nails it. This, this song needs to be sung by somebody who isn't afraid to go big, and he is not. And uh, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to believe that uh, Radiohead did not have this song in mind when they were writing My Iron Lung. Because the, the chords and the chorus are exactly the same. And this is Echo and the Bunny Men are exactly the sort of band they would have been listening to in the '80s. So, uh, Radiohead, I see what you did there. That's funny that you mentioned the chord sequence in the chorus because uh, in the verses, is that the time of the season chord sequence? Oh, it kind of is, uh, huh? By the zombies. Yeah. yeah. Every rock song has been written already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sequence isn't like owned by time of the season. I just think it's funny to like see parallels like that. Yeah, nobody owns a chord sequence. But are we done with the Killing Moon? I believe we are. Then let's move on to a song written directly in response to the Captain and Tennille's hit Muskrat Love. This is Joy Division <laughs> with Love Will Tear Us Apart. Mike and I heard Todd Rundgren cover Muskrat Love live once. Nice. <laughs> Half the songs he covered at that show were taken directly from the Dave Barry book of bad songs, which also includes uh, Todd Rundgren's We Gotta Get You a Woman, which he did not play that night. I'm keeping all of this. <laughs> Terrace Apart was released in June 1980 and reached number 13 on the UK singles chart, number one on the UK indie chart, and number 42 on the Billboard disco chart. Everybody get down! Joy Division formed in Salford, England in 1976 after guitarist Bernard Sumner and bassist Peter Hook attended a Sex Pistols concert and were inspired to start a band. Vocalist Ian Curtis and drummer Stephen Morris joined shortly thereafter. Originally named Warsaw, inspired by the David Bowie track Warsawa, 
They eventually oh. changed they eventually changed their name to Joy Division after the name of an involuntary concentration camp brothel from the novel House of Dolls. So right away you know you're in for some cheerful music. Together with their producer, the eccentric Martin Hannett, Joy Division more or less created the sound that we now recognize as post-punk. Cold, distant, and arty in a way that art rock bands weren't. And actually, they, they didn't really like the, the sound that Martin, gave them, Martin Hannett gave them at first because uh, they thought he made them sound like a Pink Floyd album, which was, you know, in those days, oh, no, 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 we can't yeah, have I'm that. Like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Not but, a Pink Floyd album. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the worst thing you could possibly make. But uh, anyway, the, the tragic part of the story is, of course, that one month before this song was released and two months before the release of their second album... And just as Joy Division were about to embark on their first North American tour, Ian Curtis hanged himself at the age of 23. He had been plagued by depression, marital problems, and epilepsy. And just from looking at his lyrics, you can tell he had a lot to struggle with. And in hindsight, it's difficult to understand how no one saw it coming. It has been suggested in some quarters that Ian Curtis was the weak link in Joy Division. And it's true that he wasn't an especially great vocalist, particularly when he tried to force his voice into a, a more of a Jim Morrison baritone range. But as a lyricist and as a presence, he was a tremendous strength. His lyrics are not the angst of a young man. They're, he doesn't sing about crushes. Uh, it's not woe is me miserableism. And it's not dark for the sake of being edgy. They are extremely and sometimes frighteningly real. He, 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 his lyrics are like, it's like they came from somebody who had been through a genocide or something. And in his head, maybe he had. None of us will ever know. Anyway, as far as Lovell Terrace Apart is concerned, it's seen by a lot of people as their masterpiece, and it is a magnificent song. Uh, synthesizers in songs from the 80s can either sound embarrassing or majestic, and this song falls firmly into the latter category. It, it sounds like the whole universe is crying. And... You can also dance to it. And incidentally, I had, inten- I had intended to karaoke this song at Rich's wedding, but uh, <laughs> they, they didn't have it. And maybe this is for the best. Well, instead we sang I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. Yeah. Yeah, about Ian Curtis, I, I agree. I wouldn't say he was a great singer per se, but he's such a great texture on songs like this. Like the yeah. less like he tries to say words, I guess, uh, and more just tries to. Well, it's almost like it almost feels like that's the piece of the music that Peter Hook like stepped up to fill in, uh, uh, like later on with New Order. Though well, I guess we'll get to that later. But uh. you know, with his sort of lead bass style, right? Like you can you can hear that on this song, but he really steps up with it after Ian Curtis is gone. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, and uh, I also watched the video for this song, which is really just like a band performance in the apartment. And uh, just one thing that I that was that I focused on is Ian is just like this like shy kid wearing a polo shirt. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And you can also see him like holding a D major chord on the guitar, which is something the other members literally just taught him to do, uh, like putting his fingers right like on the strings so he could strum the drone on the song. Yeah. This this is the one Joy Division song he plays guitar on. Yeah. So you can see that in the video. Yeah. I I don't know. So I used to be really down on Joy Division, like, uh, but. This was in the late 90s and early aughts when anything driven by synthesizers was getting mocked. So, it, And it felt to me a lot more like New Order needed defending and propping up. But uh, now, like these days in 2020, New Order are treated like gods. And yeah. like, everyone, everyone loves New Order. And I almost feel the need to pivot in the other direction. And 
I don't know. I, I don't really have much specific to say about like Love Will Tear Us Apart, but it's just hard to imagine music without it. Yeah. So, and what's probably going to be one of my hotter takes on this podcast, Uh-oh. since everybody <laughs> loves this song, I never really liked it that much. I don't dislike it, but it's always propped up as this amazingly great song, and I don't know. It never connected with me. Hmm. Unlike mm-hmm. Mike, I actually don't like the synthesizer sound in it. Oh. I just, it doesn't connect. I... Obviously, I'm wrong. Everyone loves this song. (laughs) Oh, whatever. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just I've never really been able to get into Joy Division just in general. I have all their albums. I have live stuff, outtakes, all kinds of stuff. These seem like the kind of band that I would love, but I don't know. They've always kind of left me cold. I respect them a lot more than I like them. And I definitely enjoy the group's music more as New Order. I'm sure John would be yelling at me if he were on this episode. <laughs> well, I, I can see them leaving people cold, though. They're, they're a very cold-sounding band. Their sound isn't all that inviting. Yeah, and uh, also, this is the third song on this comp, as I said before, and second in a row that appeared on the soundtrack to Donnie Darko. That's Specifically right. in the party scene toward the end. So Richard Kelly either had this compilation or it's really just attuned to his taste in music. And I don't think he replaced this one in the director's cut with, like, the politics of dancing or something. (laughs) But but, uh, I think it was still there. I think so, yeah. All right. So if we're done with Joy Division, uh, the next logical place to go would be New Order. So that's where we're going to go. This is New Order with the perfect kiss. What? Joy Division is evolving. (laughs) Nobody press B. this drum machine it's super effective what have i done (laughs) i didn't even play that damn series (laughs) i never played that game either i don't know what i'm talking about the perfect (laughs) the perfect kiss was released on may 13th 1985 and reached number 46 on the uk chart so the joy division story doesn't end there the surviving members of joy division decided they couldn't continue as joy division with ian kurt with ian curtis gone so they brought jillian gilbert on board to play keyboards and they called themselves new order Their earliest recordings sounded more or less like Joy Division without Ian Curtis, and some of them, like Ceremony, had started out as Joy Division songs. Great song. It's a great song. But they found their own sound by combining their established brand of gloomy post-punk with dance music, resulting in songs like Blue Monday, Temptation, and Bizarre Love Triangle, which you might not know the names of, but have almost certainly heard. Now, I have to admit that I generally prefer Joy Division to New Order. 
Bernard Sumner might be a somewhat better singer than Ian Curtis, but has never had the same gravitas. And as a lyricist, there's no comparison at all. But that's not to say that I don't like New Order. I like them a lot. And this is one of their best songs, particularly in its original nine-minute version, where it has lots of room to build. It's, it's full of things that I might otherwise consider cheesy, like those synthesized congas at the beginning. But New Order always sound like they're discovering these sounds for the first time. So it's kind of cool. Uh, I, I have the, the first four New Order albums in their deluxe two-CD editions that have uh, all their uh, non-album singles and remixes and things on the, on the bonus discs. And something I've realized, if you listen to those back-to-back, not, not all in one sitting or anything, but if you listen to them you know, one after another, it's uh, apparent that they weren't a band who gradually incorporated more dance music into their sound to try and stay trendy and current. They were a band who gradually acquired more and more gear and wanted to see what they could do with it. And a, a perfect example of that is uh, The Perfect Kiss with uh, its uh, sampled chorus of frogs in the middle that has no real reason to be there except that it sounds cool, which is fine with me. I don't, I don't need everything to be all deep and meaningful. And I think I, I mentioned in a previous episode, I think in the, the Kate Bush episode, that uh, the first thing New Order did when they got their hands on a sampler was they, they sampled a fart. <laughs> so, well, it's worth saying again. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Whenever you think these bands are like, you know, some kind of, you know, very serious artists making very serious art somewhere, you know, you, you remember a story like that. And it's like, yeah, they, they, these guys were just these were kids. So I am a relatively recent convert to New Order. I bought the Joy Division albums a long time ago and couldn't really get into them. And I always had heard of New Order as kind of the dancier little brother to Joy Division. And I thought, well, if I didn't like Joy Division all that much, I probably wouldn't like New Order very much either. And I ended up getting into them after listening to an episode of the podcast Political Beats about New Order, which they sounded really good. Somehow I'd avoided most of their songs. The only song of theirs I'd ever heard that I could remember at least, was Blue Monday, which is you know a great song. But I had started picking up the New Order albums, and I found that I liked them a lot more than I liked Joy Division, because it seems like they have the same basic sound, but they've added a lot more elements to it. It sounds a lot more fleshed out. It doesn't have that gloomy identity that Joy Division had. This music doesn't feel nearly as driven by a strong personality. But I think the music is generally more interesting. And yeah, The Perfect Kiss is a great song. There's an awesome nine-minute-long version of it, too, which is even better than this version, because more New Order is usually better New Order. Usually, like, their long remixes are well worth tracking down. Yeah, especially The Perfect Kiss, because it actually builds to a, to a climactic ending, and the, the version on the album just fades out. The nine-minute version is also the basis of the music video, which was directed by Jonathan Demme, uh, which is, and it's just a single, unbroken studio performance of the song. And as we know from uh, Talking Heads' Stop Making Sense, Demme has a philosophy for directing performance videos that's pretty hard to mess with. Like, if the viewer is hearing a cool sound, focus on where that sound is coming from for the duration of the sound. Hmm. 
Yeah. And so when Bernard Sumner is singing, you just get one long shot of Sumner for that entire vocal section. And just lots of cool, like, you know, setting up sequencers and just like playing keys. It's just really, it's just really, really fun. I love it. And they all look so determined. <laughs> I, I had read that uh, Jonathan Demi was really looking forward to to like filming Stephen Morris's drumming, and then they mm-hmm. they went to shoot the video, and he discovered that the the drums in this song are all they're all programmed. So yeah, so there are some like fake drums uh, in there. Like I, I mean, they they look like octopads or like what the, they, prob- the, they probably or- are or something like that. But they're not real. Yeah. Or, I, I don't know. I, I don't actually know. But it makes interesting back-to-back viewing with the Level Terrace Apart video because the band members have aged a few years and added Jillian Gilbert. Uh, but their performance style remains really similar. And, and there's a joy, there's a very visible Joy Division poster in the background as a sort of tribute. Oh, yeah. Uh, but as for The Perfect Kiss, this I, well, I love New Order, but this is my favorite New Order song and one of my very favorite songs, period. So I feel like as critic types, we're taught to sort of question songs, Mm. make songs earn our love, figure out what elements could have been better. And I do that with like everything I listen to, no matter what. But with The Perfect Kiss, none of that ever even occurred to me. Like this song is so clearly a band just achieving their perfect flow state. Like... Well, their avatar state, if you will. I think you'd appreciate that one, Phil. Yes. Uh, yeah, executing everything they're just capable of flawlessly, but without without losing a single bit of their unique character. This is just, uh, I can't imagine a better New Order song than this. I mean, my favorite New Order song remains Blue Monday, but this is hard to argue against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, Blue Monday is definitely one of my favorites, too, and their revolutionary song. Uh, but this is absolutely my favorite. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to argue for for either of those as peak New Order. Just so long as you're not, like, arguing for something off of, uh, what's that album, uh, Republic? Republic? Yeah. Then you'll probably be okay. Yeah. Yeah, but I love New Order, and uh, I have a and I have their singles slash hits compilation substance on the long list of albums I want to cover on the show. So look forward to that eventually. (laughs) It's one of those greatest hits compilations that even if you have their albums, you still need it. Because a lot of their mm-hmm. best stuff wasn't on albums, though a lot of those songs are now on the two-disc deluxe editions of their albums, which, yeah. if you're the kind of person who still buys CDs and you're interested in purchasing New Order albums, we talked about this in our Pet Shop Boys episode as well, but if you're buying the albums, don't you know scan used stores to find the original single-disc editions. You need the double-disc editions because so much of their best stuff was never on an album. Yeah, so much of mm-hmm. what makes New Order New Order is on those bonus discs. All right, so if we're done with The Perfect Kiss, we're going to finish things up with uh, the band The Dead Milkman lovingly referred to as Depeche Commode, and their, <laughs> their song Personal Jesus. Slapper. Thank you. 
quite a lineup for just five songs. Depeche Mode. These cheery fellows formed in Basildon, England, as a quartet of keyboardist Vince Clark and Andy Fletcher, guitarist and keyboardist Martin Gore, and singer Dave Gahan. Earlier versions of the band were named French Look and Composition of Sound before they settled on Depeche Mode, which is French for fast fashion. The group's sound initially centered on Vince Clark's bright, peppy songwriting, which is, which is showcased on their debut, Speak and Spell, and the hit single, Just Can't Get Enough, which we all know from a Gap ad. <laughs> After Vince Clark took off to form Yazoo and then Erasure, both of whom I adore, Martin Gore took over as primary songwriter, and Depeche Mode became a never-ending pit of overbearing gloom and despair. So Depeche Mode, especially as they evolved, leaned more and more toward a fusion of synth-pop and rock, and they're an enormous influence on industrial music like Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson. I put Marilyn Mansion. <laughs> Damn, you autocorrect. Or really any synthesized music that gets really, really heavy. Uh, so they honed their sound on albums including Some Great Reward, Black Celebration, and Music for the Masses. And Personal Jesus comes from their 1990 album Violator, where they finally embraced the rock sound whole hog. So the album was their big breakthrough in the U.S., and the single hit number 13 in the U.K. and number 28 on the Hot 100. So, Amanda wanted to be on this episode, but she contracted COVID-19, which she has almost recovered from, thankfully, to all of our enormous relief. Uh, but she left us this note, quote, I really like Depeche Mode, and they are more interesting than the Pet Shop Boys. This is in no way intended to provoke any specific person. End quote. <laughs> Under normal circumstances, them's fighting words, but Amanda has been in the same room for almost two weeks now, so I'll just continue with a smile. <laughs> so I was really into the mode in high school, but I've just kind of soured on them over the years. I wasn't a very outwardly gloomy teen, so I just kind of ended up outsourcing my gloom to my headphones through music like this. Do any? Do you guys have any music like that? Oh, sure. But uh, for me, it was it was it was usually the cure. Oh, yeah, it was definitely the cure for me, but they have, like, their happier side, so I'm more... I, I, I listen to them more as an adult. Hmm. I, I listen to a lot of very angry industrial rock. <laughs> so stuff influenced by Depeche Mode. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but even when I love Depeche Mode, I never honestly really like Personal Jesus that much, and listening to it on its own, it's just super-duper repetitive and gets old really fast to me. And a lot of my friends have been like, what, when I've told them that in preparation <laughs> for this episode? But yeah, get over it. Uh, it's never <laughs> one of my favorites by them, but it has like this galloping cowboy swing that's completely unique to Depeche Mode, I admit. Uh, and they really play that up in the music video, which is set at a Spanish ranch slash brothel and has a lot of Dave Gahan chest hair in it. <laughs> Um, and I actually like the song a lot more when I listen to it as part of the video. They they go together really, really well. And it reminds me that the band has a sense of humor, which can occasionally be in doubt. See the entire Black Celebration album. <laughs> Depeche Mode are a band I've been meaning to check out. I've never really heard any of their albums, and I've just heard their singles. And not even all of them. But there's always been a roadblock to me buying Depeche Mode albums and checking them out in more detail. And that reason is that I do not like this song at all. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize that it's probably a little atypical of their sound, but this is the song I associate with them, and this song just annoys the hell out of me. I recognize that it's doing interesting things, that it's got a unique sound, but uh, I just want this song to end whenever it <laughs> plays. I listened to it intentionally five times while preparing for this episode, to try to like it more, and I kind of came away from it disliking it even more than when I went in, <laughs> just because I always hated how repetitive it is, and listening to it five times did not help that. <laughs> 
So, again, I'll probably listen to Depeche Mode more, because I really do have a feeling that it's one of those cases where their really famous song has driven me away, but I'd probably like the band themselves. Well, even the other singles from Violator are a lot more agreeable to me. Enjoy the Silence and Policy of Truth. I don't recognize those from the titles, but... You've probably heard Enjoy the Silence. Yeah, Depeche Mode are a a band that you would think I would be all into, because I I love gloom and doom sad guy music, but uh, nothing I heard by them ever really connected all that much with me. Although listening to, to this song on headphones... I can certainly appreciate the production a lot. I think I like it more for the the sound of it than for the the song itself. Because for 1990, this is still it's still full of songs that are real uh real state of the art and fancy sounding. So uh they they did a did a real good job there. Who was it? Was it Flood who produced that album? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Flood. Good old Flood. He didn't produce Flood, but they might be giants though. <laughs> Missed that opportunity. But I, I think my, my two favorite things about this song are, one, that Johnny Cash covered it. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Feeling unknown and you're all alone, flesh and bone, by the telephone. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. Which, I, I, I'm not a big fan of his cover. He sounds fine covering, say, Nine Inch Nails is Hurt, but covering this, it really sounds more like a novelty to me. Yeah, I just love the the fact that he did it more than his actual cover. Yeah, oh, Marilyn Manson covered this too. It sucks. Reach out and, touch and I actually kind of like Marilyn Manson, but... And also, just the, the stories I've heard of this absolutely clearing the dance floor at Christian high school dances. Yeah, but I recommend getting a good Depeche Mode hits compilation. I mean, they have a lot of great songs. I don't think they have a lot of consistent albums, but you'll get like, you know, Behind the Wheel, Never Let Me Down Again, Everything Counts. They have so many good singles. Every used CD shop I go to always has about 800 different Depeche Mode compilations. So yeah. I'll probably check one of those out the second I'm allowed out of the house. So that really famous song sucks. <laughs> And with that, I think we're done with this episode of This Is Comp. Yeah. Let's roll credits. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is Comp. Yeah, yeah. This is Comp. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to This Is Comp, part of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. Our theme music is based on the song This Is Pop by XTC, originally composed by Andy Partridge. The opening theme is performed by The Hector Collectors, and you can buy their albums at thehectorcollectors.bandcamp.com. This closing theme you're hearing is performed by Kenneth Crayley, and you can hear his music at Kenneth Crayley, that's K-R-A-Y-L-I-E, dot bandcamp.com, and his band Casinos, at casinos.bandcamp.com. See you soon for more 120 minutes, and be ever wonderful. Do they might be giants want to be adored? We want the stone roses to be adored. We're hoping you'll do the job for us.